Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find a plan there. And we also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today, we are on day 120. 120. That's a big number right there. So, uh, And don't forget, keep sending us those questions, uh, whether you're listening along, maybe this is the first time you're listening along with us. Uh, or you've read through the Bible and you've got questions about some of the things you read, we love to create time every week as much as we can to answer some of those questions. So make sure to send them in. There are three ways you can send them in. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Uh, Or you can DM us on social media. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, as Evan already said. We have a Facebook page and an Instagram handle, uh, both of which are the Grove CH. Uh, You can DM us on either one of those platforms as well. There you go. All right. Well, this week we have a, uh, I don't know, Aaron, it's pretty, it's pretty jam-packed. Not as jam-packed as last week. Last week was our official <laughs> longest podcast episode ever. What? Which I would have thought that one of the ones we did on Job would have been our longest one ever. But no, this last week, last week takes the cake. So there you go. That's fair. That's uh, fair. What yeah, it was, it was a doozy. But this one, I mean, we're jumping in. We're wrapping up the story in the life of David. Not to give spoilers, uh, but then let's just say in the next few weeks... We're going to be recapping a lot of his life. That's true. From his own perspective. So anyways. Absolutely. That is absolutely true. But listeners, Not enough with yet. the foreshadowing. Let's talk about where we are in the story. So we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 31 uh, through the end of the chapter. So remember last week we kind of, right, it was right when Mephibosheth came back and that was kind of where we left it. Yep. Ziba also, you know, he gets some stuff out of that as well. So... Uh, you know, it depends on who you want to believe. I personally believe Mephibosheth. I think that guy's wow, pretty I'm trustworthy. Wow, yeah, Team Zeba. So there you go. But uh, as David continues his uh, march back to Jerusalem after the rebellion of Absalom, uh, he meets with a man named Barzillai or Barzili, 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 Barzillai, Barzillai. I don't know. Uh, and he wishes to reward him for his loyalty. So David invites him to live at the palace with him. However, Barzillai is very old and he wishes to die in his own town. So he doesn't want to go to the palace in live a few more years and and then just die there. So uh, David then accepts Barzillai's, uh, I put son question mark, Chim- Chimham. It just says your servant Chimham, which I don't, I, I don't think it's Barzillai's, I don't know, but I, I would assume it's his son goes to live with David, but it's never really clarified on, on who this person is. Uh, but he goes to live in the palace, which is a high honor. So to be clear, Barzal- Barzillai is not saying like, no, that sucks. I don't want to do it. He's just yeah. saying, I'm very old. But thank you for this honor. Uh, but yeah, I, I I'm not going to live very long. Exactly. So, so for Chimham, this isn't a punishment. This is like this is a great honor that he gets to go live uh, at the king's in the palace, palace for dungeon. A time. Yeah, in the palace dungeon. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, we get a a quick aside. This is really sad. We get a quick aside <laughs> of the ten concubines who Absalom claimed. Uh, so remember, Absalom becomes king. Or, you know, king, self-proclaimed king. in air quotes, uh, spoilers, listeners, we won't be ranking Absalom because he's not a true king. What? I know. Uh, but he uh, he takes 10 of his father's concubines. Side and, note, he'd be in the bottom tier. Yes. Yeah. Even Anyways. if we do. Yeah. So oh, we will, are we ranking? David doesn't die this week, does he? Because we go, I'd have to remember the readings no, now. he does. He does? Okay. Yeah, so he we'll, dies this week. Well, in that case, we'll be ranking our second king. Oh, and listeners, by the way, th- I know you're super excited about this. I made a tier list on Photoshop. So as we go... Me and Aaron are at, we're adding. We made these. a pretty graphic. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. We're gonna put all the names in. We have all the tiers listed out, and then once it's done, we'll put it in the show notes so you can you can behold yeah. the official. Let's read the Bible Kings tier list 
in all of its glory. But yeah. and then we'll put we'll put our names in there as well. Just to, as I'm just kidding. kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There, there you go. <laughs> um, so, anyways, these these ten concubines uh, of Absalom, they are essentially they're treated as widows. So David doesn't treat them. I'm trying to think of like how not to say it graphically, but. David doesn't have sex with them, I guess. Yeah, he doesn't but, sleep with them yeah, anymore. Yeah, he doesn't sleep with them anymore. Uh, they, it says that they live as widows. So kind of just a, it's a bummer deal for them. Yeah, in essence, they're, they're, they're still provided for in some respects, but they're put in isolation. I mean, that's the, the easiest way to say it. Like, okay, go live over there now. Like, I'll take care of you, whatever, but there's no other value. Yeah, yeah basically they live uh, the life of Michael, except they didn't choose. And I guess neither did Michael in some extent, but they didn't necessarily do anything to deserve that. So yeah. there you go. Um, after this, we meet Sheba, the son of Betri, a who is a Benjamite. Uh, he goes and he incites some of the people of the northern tribes to into rebellion. Um, it doesn't seem to take much. Nope. <laughs> like I put it in the thing, it's like, hey, you know, David, that guy's from Judah. What? Why should we be loyal to him? And the other ten tribes are like, yeah. And they just join. I don't know. It's a whole. <laughs> it's a whole thing. Uh, and so. David commands Amasa to go gather the armies of Judah and to put this bad boy down. However, Amasa is impressively slow with this. He, he takes his time. Uh, and so obviously when David wants something done right, who does he go to, Aaron? He goes to Abishai. Your the, guy. The best of his mighty men. Uh, and so when, <laughs> when Amasa finally arrives, uh, Joab, who apparently is just not a fan of fair fights, like when Joab has beef with somebody, he's, he's not a dueler. He just sucker stabs him. Hey, come, let's talk. Stab. Yeah. And then leaves him dying in the road. And so it's a poor, it's a really sad end for Amasa. Um, not the best of David's generals, but also it just kind of shows the, uh, there's moments of, uh, here's the thing. Well, to be fair though, Amasa did kick, take Joab's spot. Right. Joab I, was removed and Amasa was put in his spot. So maybe Joab is just a little bit, a little bit hangry, a little bit jealous. Oh yeah. I'm for sure. This is, this is why Joab does his thing. But it's one of those things where I, uh, here's the thing. I have a I before this year I came into this year with an extremely low opinion of Joab. Um, I still don't think he's like a great guy, but there are moments that I, I I've realized I haven't given him credit. I haven't given him credit for some of his high moments as well. Um, for instance, his rebuke of David after the Absalom incident incident is actually a really good thing, and probably like you said last week, it probably saved David's kingship. And then there's another high point this week that we'll talk about as well. And then uh, last week we also talked about how like yeah, his moment of faith where they're outnumbered, and he just says, "Hey, we're gonna go, and if this is God's will, it's God's will. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna win." So, uh, but that does not excuse his bad moments. And the way he kills Abner is pretty unacceptable. And he essentially kills Amasa in the same way, where he just like, "Hey, Amasa, come over here," and then just stabs him, and then. He takes control of the army and goes. So there you go. And I don't want you know, I don't want my rose-colored glasses of Abishai to color this as well. He is almost certainly aware that this happened. You know what I mean? Like it's not like Abishai is like, whoa, Mesa was just like, what happened yeah. to him? So uh, Abishai is probably a bit of an enabler when it comes to his brother. He gave Joab, Joab a high five, probably. Yeah, exactly. All right, so Joab <laughs> arrives at the city where Sheba is holed up. Uh, however, a woman with some real Abigail vibes come out comes out and tries to find a peaceful solution. So this is the second time that we've read in the Samuel accounts where. Uh, some guys are getting a little hot-headed, and then a woman comes out and is like, hey, 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 what if we don't kill everybody? And they're like, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So good on – although this woman is not named, I, I believe. I should have written that down. I'm not sure. But uh, – No, I don't believe she is. So she's like, hey, hey, wait, do we need to kill everybody here? And Joab's like, hey, I'm only here for Sheba, and so uh, if you – bring him out. That's fine with me. And she's like, yeah, that's a, that's a good deal. So they go back into the city and they cut off his head and they throw it up to Joab. And that's, that's. Notice the, how they don't even come back out to Joab. They just chuck it over the yep, fence. They're like, they hey, hey, here you go. Here it is. 
See ya. And so that's, heads up. That's uh, see what I did there. Yeah, that was good. Uh, so that is the end of Shiva. So peace out. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that was it's pretty unceremonious how it goes down. Uh, and Joab's a man of his word. He's like, oh, sweet, okay, thanks. And then the army leaves. So the 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 city is saved, and no one else has to die. It's just Shiva. Uh, after this, we run over to Psalm 7, which is written after an unknown Benjaminite of Saul's clan slanders David. Uh, read probably Shiva. So, but, you know, it, he is technically unknown. It's kind of like the, who was the Edomite a couple years ago? Not a couple years, a couple episodes ago where there was a Psalm. Uh, I don't remember his name. There was the, uh, it was the guy who Saul, Saul ordered to kill all of the priests. And it was someone, the Edomite, who did it for him. And now I can't remember. Anyway, sorry, listeners. Oh, that's right. His guy. My point was that psalm was also anonymous, but it's probably who it's talking about. It's the same thing with this psalm here in Psalm 7. Uh, But this psalm tackles the same theme as so many of David's psalms. And we'll see this next week when we kind of have a psalm extravaganza. This is a theme in a lot of them. Uh, But is Yahweh is David's true fortress and protection. That is something that David constantly reminds himself of. And it's kind of his greatest failings. Uh, Well, his greatest failing is king, I suppose we'll say is coming up here in a little bit and we'll talk about we'll talk about that and how it's kind of a failure of him to remember this as well. Uh, and then in this psalm, David asks God to judge him according to what he deserves, which is also a theme of many of the psalms. Uh, and so this is verses eight through nine. It says, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. And so we see this theme again with a lot of the psalms where David it's it's not bragging, but he's he's very much saying like God, I've upheld your covenant, and so deal with me according to that. There's some of the psalms where the he takes a very different tone, and we'll talk about those next week as well. Um, but a lot of the psalms are David kind of saying, "Hey, I'm righteous, and I'm upholding the covenant. Lord, uphold your end of the covenant as well." Mm-hmm. So I'm, it's it's hard to know how to read those because it is a different covenant than we live under today. Um, but obviously, and and David's not claiming sinless perfection here. He's essentially saying that he's seeking after the Lord. So, but you know, it's it's still, it reads, it reads odd, I guess is the way to say it to modern Christian years. Uh, then we jump into chapter 21 and this, this one's a really kind of a bummer story. Uh, we learned that David is looking to make things right with the Gibeonites. And if you're thinking to yourself, that sounds familiar. Think all the way back to Joshua. Uh, this is the nation of people who see what the armies of Israel are doing. And they're like, Hey, we should trick Israel into making an alliance with us. And they do. They're like, Hey, we come from far away, make an alliance with us. And the people of Israel are like, they don't seek the Lord. They're just like, oh yeah, sure. Why not? And then all of a sudden they realize like, ah, we were living in Canaan the whole time, but now you can't kill us. It's like, ah, that's exactly how it went. Fine. That's exactly. If you read the Hebrew uh, and the Aramaic translations, that's exactly how it went. Never started land war with the Gibeonites (laughs) when death is on the line. Uh, And, or go up. Anyway, that was was an attempted princess bride reference. Anyway, so there are this people group that live within Israel. They're not Israelites. Uh, Saul, it says he kind of gets caught up in his zeal for the people of Israel and he tries to drive them out. Uh, And so David asks, hey, what can I do to make things right? So the Gibeonites have been hurt by Saul. uh, And they reply that they would like to hang seven sons of Saul before the Lord. 
Uh, and David agrees. So kind he, of a weird thing, but okay. Yeah. And so, and when, I should clarify, when we say sons of Saul, that just means male descendants of Saul, because all of Saul's sons are dead at this point. Wait, but what? Has, yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh, but he does have grandsons. So David uh, delivers, he spares Mephibosheth, remember, who is the son of Jonathan that lives in David's household. Although another Mephibosheth, apparently that was just a popular family name. Another no. Mephibosheth is hanged, but not the Mephibosheth. Um, and then I think this is always important to note. Uh, the narrator is silent as to God's feelings on the matter. And I, I don't think this is something God approve of, approves of. So particularly like you had the passages of the law where you're not holding sons accountable for the sins of their father. Um, God will do that sometimes, but as man, we are not supposed to do that within the covenant. And that's what's going on here. So not great. Uh, this, But the, yeah, the seven sons of Saul are hanged. Uh, after this, David takes the bones of the seven sons. And then as well, I guess I never thought about this. He goes to find the bones of Saul and Jonathan. Because remember the men from Gilead went and they took the bones out of the Philistine. I forgot where they were displaying them. I know Saul's head was at the temple of Dagon, but there's a couple other things, but they go and they rescue the bones of Jonathan and Saul and they bring them back. Uh, and so now David goes and he finds them and he buries all the bones into the tomb of Saul's father. So he gives them kind of an honorable resting mm-hmm. place and yeah. particularly for his friend, Jonathan and his case, he also takes his bones as well. So well, it also just shows the honor again, even in the midst of everything David has had to navigate with Saul. Uh, it just, again, shows the the respect and care and honor he had for Saul, who was God's anointed king at that time. Right. So, um, again, it's just he was wronged multiple times by Saul, but he doesn't carry a grudge, which I think is pretty significant as well. Yep. True, true story. Well, probably doesn't carry a grudge. We'll get into there's a weird thing to interpret well, at the yeah. end. So, but we'll talk about that. That's a spoiler for the end of the end of to my carry a grudge towards Saul. We'll just say that. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so moving on with the chapter, we get another war with the Philistines. If you thought it was over, not yet. Psych. <laughs> so uh, in this battle, David is almost killed until this happens. So this is starting in verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Binob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze. Oh, I, know what you're, I know what you're thinking. 300 shekels of bronze? It's like eight pounds. I was really, dis- I was really disappointed in this because I was like, "Oh, dude, how heavy is this spear?" And I was like, "Oh, eight pounds." Okay, I mean, maybe I guess that must. He wasn't Goliath. And in fairness, in fairness, I don't know what a standard weight of a spear is. So maybe that is an exceptionally heavy spear, and this is an impressive thing. But I was, yeah, you know, I was thinking like thirty pounds or something like that. But you know, what are you going to do? Uh, so, anyways, the the spear weighed three hundred shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword? He thought to kill David, but Abishai, who the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Uh, and then David's men swore to him, "You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel." Uh, and this is, it's kind of a sad moment here, but basically what's happening is David is too old to fight. Uh, not so, some of his mighty men, I guess, are probably either they're younger or they're just like I guess they've just been warriors, only warriors their whole lives. So they hold out a little bit longer, but David is now too old. Uh, and so they say, you can't come into battle with us anymore because essentially if David just dies in battle, then that's kind of the end, particularly because at this point, David is old, but his uh, his son who will be his heir is probably not old enough to be king uh, and certainly not a good king. And then I guess, I mean, yeah, we can argue. I mean, Solomon was like, if you throw, if you just look, if you just opened up a history book and you weren't considering the spiritual relationship between Solomon and Yahweh, Solomon was a good king, but there's uh, there's a reason that he's not considered a good king. Because, hey, but we'll we get haven't into, ranked him yet. Yeah, that's true. We'll get into it. We'll get into Solomon Just delete later. that, dear listener. Oh my goodness. All right. So the Chronicles passage goes through the same thing. Uh, it gives us the same giant slaying update as we get in 2 Samuel. And we are told that Sibachai slaves 
slaves. <laughs> he slays Sipai. Uh, Elhanan slays Lami, who is the brother of Goliath. Ooh. And his spears describe the exact same way a weaver's beam. So, and again, listen, if you haven't looked up a weaver's beam, look it up. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. They also just have like actual um, Goliath, not actual Goliath spears. They have replicas of the Goliath spear on, on the internet as well, which I thought was pretty cool. So, and then finally, I didn't know this, David's nephew, nephew, Jonathan gets in on the action and he slays a six finger giant. And I shouldn't say he doesn't, he has 24 total digits. So he has six fingers on both hands and six fingers on both toes. Speaking of princess bride references, <laughs> Did you, hear what you just said on both toes, six fingers on both hands, six fingers on both toes. Oh, six toes on both, six <laughs> toes on both feet. Oh my gosh, listeners. I'm just all, I'm all over the place today. Uh, but yeah, sorry. That's just funny to me. Yeah, I know. He said, I hope my, I hope our listeners are laughing with me, not at you. He said, I'm, you know, I'm Jonathan David's nephew. Nephew, My uncle is doing very well. <laughs> Prepare to die. And he went for it. Uh, and I also like Again, this. the actual Hebrew translation. Exactly. Uh, I also like that his name is Jonathan. That's a nice little touch there. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, so we get, we jump over to 2 Samuel 22, uh, which is a basically identical to Psalm 18. So we're going to also do Psalm 18 at the same time. Uh, and this Psalm kind of tells the story of David's reign. So it, it, it really is, if you read through it, it's a poetic retelling mm-hmm. of the story of David. Um It begins with the very familiar refrain. So this is in verse one. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So there you go. It's it's David reminding himself and reminding the people of Israel that God is his true fortress. God is the one who has won these battles. Uh, It does, however, quickly pivot to a poetic retelling of Yahweh's victories for David. It says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord to to my God. I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry reached him in his ears. Uh, Side note, the temple thing confused me. In a bunch of the Psalms, David refers to the tabernacle as the temple, which is kind of interesting there. So maybe it's showing kind of, it's what he kind of yearns for. Uh, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down or bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. I love that description of God. Basically, David's saying, I cried out to God uh, for help and God came and it was the most terrifying thing my enemies have ever seen is essentially a way to sum that up. But really, obviously, he's saying that very poetically. Uh, The psalm continues to praise God for his faithful love and victory and it highlights God's desire for humility. And David declares that Yahweh treated him well for his keeping of the covenant. So essentially, because David pursues God um, and pursues righteousness, God treated him well, which in that sense, that is true. Uh, we get to 2 Samuel 24, and this section gives us David's final, and I put unquestioned failure as king. There's some things that we'll get in that happen later in David's life that are I, I would probably consider failures, but this is the one where it's very clear that this is un. Un, unapproved, disapproved, disproved of by God. I don't know why I was uh, disapproved. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I am str- <laughs> listeners. I am struggling today. This is why you should drink coffee, Evan. Yeah, I had to be at the church early. I had to film stuff, and I was. You, you got know, to be here early. I got. I got the There's opportunity. Some exciting things happening. That's so. true. I mean, I did go to Chick Fil A to reward myself for breakfast, but what are you going to do? Anyway, well done. 
So David decides that he wants to have a census of the whole nation of Israel. And this is seen as a bad thing by pretty much everyone around him. And this is confusing to read because you're just like, wait, what? it's What's it's wrong fun- with that. Yeah. It's funny because it's not like it's explained why it's bad. It's just understood by every other character in the story. Like, well, what are you talking about? And I guess it's, it's, I don't know, for us, it's like, yeah, the census, it happens every 10 years. And I have to say how many TVs I have in my house or whatever it is. Uh, but this is a wicked, this is a wicked thing that uh, David is about to do. Uh, Joab tries to talk him out of it, which is good. You know, again, good for Joab, which is, I don't give Joab enough credit, uh, but David won't listen. The census goes through and the numbers are understandably, they're very high because David's had a very successful reign. Uh, and we could jump over to Chronicles. And so this 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 are mirror chapters of each yeah. other. They they give, it's nice because the Chronicles actually gives a little bit more yeah, detail. 1 Chronicles is a better read than <laughs> the Samuel. Which account. I feel like is not true of most of the sections. So good on Chronicles here for uh, giving us a little, little extra. Uh, the Chronicles section uh, gives us two very important differences. In Samuel, it is said that God incites David. In Chronicles, it's said that it's Satan who incites David to do the the uh, the, sen- the census. Uh, honestly, it's it's, it's it's that sounds really confusing for me. It's pretty easy to synthesize. It's God allows Satan to incite David. Yeah, uh, it's the same thing we walk through in Job, right? Where the the Satan is the one who is attacking Job, but it's happening because God allows it to happen. Anything that happens in the universe <laughs> happens because God allows it to happen because God is all powerful. So that that's why that's going on. Uh, the other difference is that Joab does not include either Benjamin or Levi in the sense, in the census. So because Joab understands that this is a wicked thing to do, he doesn't include Levi because they are the priestly set apart tribe and he doesn't want to include this, include them in this evil thing that David is doing. Benjamin is interesting. So there's a couple ideas that are floated. Number one, it could be because Benjamin was located in... Uh, not Benjamin, Jerusalem was located in Benjamin, which is kind of the holy city at that point. That's where the ark is. And so maybe Joab is saying, hey, I don't want to include the tribe of Benjamin in this. Um, the other thing is it could it could be because it was the tribe of Saul. So, and I, I'll talk about that here in a second. This is more, that will be a very open-handed, just kind of conjecture on my point, but it was something I was thinking on my part. Mm-hmm. It was something I was thinking about while I was reading, but we'll finish the story. And then the last thing I'll talk about is why was the census bad? And me and Aaron kind of go back and forth on that a little bit. I don't know if we're going to disagree or not, but we didn't, we didn't, we didn't talk about this beforehand. Uh, so we Ooh. go back to second Samuel. And once the census is completed, David feels guilty over his sin. Uh, he repents to Yahweh and God offers him three choices, which is kind of, this is also a first, I believe, or at least it's something that doesn't come up very often. So God says, okay, well, would you rather have three years of famine for the whole nation? Would you rather have three months of fleeing before your enemies? Or would you rather have three days of a pestilence? Uh, and so David's like, huh, three days, that sounds way better. So he says, give me the pestilence. And so 70,000 men of Israel are killed. However, Yahweh relents and he tells the angel to cease uh, the killing. And he does so at the house of Arunah. Aru, Aruna, Aruna. That one's a hard one to pronounce as well. I just like listening to you try and say I it. Was, uh, <laughs> anem, anemone. Uh, so, and this is important because there's a place where the angel of the Lord stops and good for, I mean, lucky for this guy. I shouldn't say lucky. It's God, but like, it's a good thing that it stopped right when I did it because this guy was next. Uh, and then at the end of the section, David asked God to punish only him and not his sheep, uh, which I think is a really apt metaphor because remember, what is David come up as. He's a shepherd. And so he views the people of Israel as the sheep that he's taking care of early in life. He's taking care of literal sheep, his father's flocks. Later in life, he's taking care of his people. So I, I love that that's the attitude that David has for his people. Um, we will see that come up. I thought, sorry, well, I guess this is just spoilers, but we'll, cause we're talking about Psalm 23 next week. 
I thought it was interesting because I realized, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. So David views himself as a shepherd over his people, Israel, but in his relationship with God, he is humble and views himself as one of the sheep that God is taking care of. So anyway, if, if you forget Aww. it before next week, we'll bring it back up. Uh, and so in first Chronicles chapter 21, passage is mostly similar. There's not a ton to note that's different. Uh, and then as we get to the end of the story here, the final passage of Samuel shows David being commanded to build an, ar- an altar at the threshing full of Arunas, so the guy who was who managed to survive. Uh, and so we'll just read that quick passage here. This is, and when Arunah went, looked down, he saw, sorry, Arunah is on the threshing floor. So he's on an up high place and he's looking down and he sees the, the king coming towards him. He saw the king and his servants coming towards him and Arunah went down and paid homage to the king with his face on the ground. And Arunah said, why has the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar of the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And Arunah said to, to David, let my Lord, the king take up Uh, Take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O King Arunah, gives to the king. And Arunah said to the king, may the Lord God accept you. But the king said to Arunah, no, I will not buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and a peace offering. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So what's happening in this moment is God commands him, you're going to build an altar at the place where I stopped. And so David goes and he wants to, he wants to do this the right way because unlike certain kings that we'll read about later who just see a piece of land that they want and they have the guy killed, looking at you, Ahab, uh, David, <laughs> is gonna, David is going to buy the land off the guy. Uh, the guy, understandably, is like, hey, whoa, you're the king. You can have whatever you want, man. Like, I just, you know, I, wa- I just want your favor. <laughs> like, I want you to like me, so take it all. And David's like, no, like, this is my, it's my mistake that led to this. It's my sacrifice. It doesn't count as my sacrifice if I'm not giving up anything to make this happen. So good on David here. Um, there are two different prices that are listed. Uh, that is also pretty easily synthesized as the much lower price is probably for specifically the threshing floor where the altar is built and the higher price is for the land in general around it. Yeah. Uh, when we get to Chronicles, it's uh, we see Arna, he's instead named as Ornan. This was a fun little rabbit hole I fell down because I was like, okay, what's going on here? Why is the name completely different? Uh, In English, those names are very different. In Hebrew, it's just a slightly different way of spelling the name. Mm -hmm. And so it's the way it was put forward is like when you say like John versus Juan is kind of like how you would, how we would view it today. Or Jane, I did this. I also found this out. James versus Jacques, which I did not know was the same name. Jacques. So there you go. Uh, And then this is, you can chalk this up also to Chronicles most likely being written much later than Samuel. Uh, Samuel seems to be written pretty soon after the events are over. Chronicles is post-exilic, uh, almost certainly. So, or at least during the exiles when it's all being compiled. Uh, the Chronicles account does add this section at the end where we hear more, sorry, when I say post-exilic, I mean after the fall of Jerusalem. I guess I shouldn't just like throw throw words around and assume everyone understands. You're confusing me. Uh, yeah. So the Chronicles was most likely written in the period after Jerusalem falls and the people of Israel are living in exile and making their way back to Jerusalem. But we'll get to that. Listeners, we'll get to back that later. And if you're reading and you're like, Jerusalem falls, sorry about that. So sorry for that spoiler. Uh, it falls twice. 
So the Chronicles account uh, does add this section at the end where we hear more about this angel. And so I thought this was interesting. We kind of get the perspective of the angel here. Uh, and David there built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called the and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven and upon the altar of the burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offering were at that time the height in the high place of Gibeon, but David could not go before to inquire of the Lord, uh, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. So there you go. We kind of get, it reminds me of the uh, Balaam and the donkey where the angel of the Lord is like ready to kill. And God's like, all right, no, no more. That's kind of what happens to David here. So there you go. All right. So last thing I'm going to talk about before we kind of hand it over to Aaron for his portion today, why was the census such a big deal? So I think there's two things. One of them is really, uh, I shouldn't say obvious, but one of them I think is clearly true. And this is that David is trusting in his own strength over the strength of Yahweh. And remember, it's a huge theme in all the songs, not all the Psalms, but in a lot of the Psalms, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my fortress. The Lord is my shield. David constantly has to remind himself that he is not the one who is going to take vengeance. He is not the one who is going to provide for his own safety. He needs to rely on the Lord. Remember back to the story of Abigail. What is the sin that David is afraid of committing? It's not just murder. It's the fact that he was about to try and deliver himself instead of letting the Lord deliver him. In this moment with the census, David is trusting in himself. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to show that he has the strength, he has the armies to deliver Israel from any problem. I think that's clearly one of the things that's going on. The other one, I thought this was, this, this is, again, this is just an idea that occurred to me. This could be completely off base. I wonder if part of this is possibly gloating over how much the kingdom has expanded since Saul. And so he takes over as king, the kingdom has grown, and he wants to take a census to record just how much land and territory and people, how much better off Israel is than when it was under Saul. And that the reason I thought of that is I want, because I wondered why does Joab not take a census of Benjamin. And that's because that's Saul's home tribe. And so I wondered if hmm. maybe maybe that's what's kind of going on there is Joab sees this not only as a dishonor to the Lord, but also as a dishonor to Saul, the king who came before David. Again, interesting. Who knows? That's just an idea that that's just an idea that came to me there that I, I was kind of wondering about. So I don't know if you had anything to add on. Well, on that I, th point. I think I think you're 100 percent right. I think a lot of it has to do with it, trusting his own strength over Yahweh. Because in, in up to this point in biblical history, the only the only time that there was ever a census initiated was by God saying, "Take a census." Oh, that's a good point. Um, I didn't think about that. But and right. so, so David David initiated a, a census outside of God's command. And I do think it was to to reaffirm to him, look at my might and my power. What happens in Nebuchadnezzar, if you, as we read months and months in the future now, there's going to be a story of Nebuchadnezzar who stands on top of his palace and says, look at the kingdom I built for myself. And he was told that if you say that, when you say this, you're going to be cast down. Uh, so that prophecy is fulfilled in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And so you see this moment of not rejection of God's provision, but a confidence rooted in something outside of God. Um, and so I, I think 100% right that the, the part of the wrath that's poured out is the fact that David initiated a sense that's outside of the will of God. Um, and it created the, the look at how great my kingdom has become. I'm not sure I, I, I 
I could see how you get there, but I'm not sure I, that that's where I would land. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the reason why he eliminates the Levites is is given. You see that all throughout the census is that the Levites aren't counted anyways because they're not really able-bodied men. They don't fight. Um, and unless that, you attack the tabernacle. Unless you, yes, because you've got gatekeepers. Then, that's then, part of it. Then but, they go for it. But the other side of it is like they they typically and historically are not necessarily counted in a census because a census, census was established to uh, for military strength is what it was for. Um and so, so I think that's part of it, the tension. Um, removing Benjamin, I could see him remove Benjamin from the census because Benjamin doesn't doesn't yield to David. The Benjamin has been the one tribe that had Shammai, whatever his name is, come out. True. He was, he was against David. So there's not been loyalty to the house of David because Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin. So there's loyalty to the house of Saul. Um, I would actually wonder and speak, speculate out loud if... The house of Saul that's referred to in our reading so far has more to do with the tribe of Benjamin because that's the tribe Saul came from. Um, and so there could be some kind of correlation there. So that would be where I could see Joab not. And Joab Joab makes decisions based upon the kingdom's best interest from his perspective, which aren't always accurate, but that's, I think, kind of his heartbeat. So I could see that part of the reason why is because Benjamin doesn't have the king's back. Why would I count them as part of the able-bodied men? when they're the ones giving hardship to yeah, David. Yeah, that's so, a good point too. Um, so that, that would be the only thing that I could get. I don't know if it's... Because again, I go back to David's respect and honor and, and recognition of God, Saul as the Lord's anointed. Um, the census would have created a little bit of pride in him. Look how great the kingdom is. Um, so I could see that, that kind of that, that overlap a little bit, but I don't think that was the intention behind the census. But it's definitely... I mean, the census was a massive deal and a massive problem. Um, but we'll have to ask definitely interesting thoughts. Well, who asked Jesus when we get there? I was, I was going to say, we'll have to ask Joe one day. We'll see if he's, if he's in heaven. I like to think he is. All right. Well, listener, before we jump into the rest of our readings today, uh, we do want to take a moment to remind you to leave us a five-star review on whatever app you are listening on, particularly. Do it. Do it. For sure. Particularly, however, Apple Podcasts and Spotify are the two that really help us out. Uh, Just, yeah, the more five-star reviews we get, the better the algorithm kind of puts us out there. And on Apple Podcasts, not Spotify yet, hopefully one day. Come on, Spotify. Uh, But on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do so, we will read it on the air, just like we're doing for Taryn Christine 515. So uh, I will say this. The bummer is if Spotify allows written reviews on podcasts, all 170 plus ratings <laughs> would have gone five star without giving a written review. So we couldn't give them a shout out. So if you yeah. are one of the 170 plus five star reviews from Spotify, kudos to you. Thank you we for being love, a part of our community. We love all of our five star reviews equally. Yes. But Par- Taryn says this, she said, good flow. It's just the, the title of the, the review is great find. Um, so I'm glad you found us and thank you for saying it was a great find and not a cumbersome find. Uh, but she says, good flow and really good breakdown of each story helps with understanding and uh, any underlying message to be looking out for with a thumbs up emoji. So uh, that's rad. I love it. I'm glad that it's still a continued helpful podcast for people. So thank you for leaving us that review. Uh, would love to see more and be able to read more in the future weeks. So make sure to drop that comment and that review uh, for us. Uh, as Evan said, we're kind of continuing in this week's reading. Uh, we jump back in after uh, well, we stay in Chronicles actually, but then we jump to chapter 26 uh, and we kind of crank through a few chapters here. Uh, chapter 26, we'll find details, the roles and positions of the Levites. So in essence, David is now establishing the roles of the Levites for the tabernacle. He's establishing roles and positions uh, for all the parties involved. Uh, and so chapter 26 details uh, the positions uh, who, of those who serve as gatekeepers. In essence, if you're anything like me, I had to look this up. I'm like, what does a gatekeeper in a tabernacle do? Um, it's pretty simple, uh, but they kind of, they stand guard 
to to protect against any impurities or possible defilements for the tabernacle itself, um, which is a pretty significant deal. So, um, so that so he assigns gatekeeper gatekeepers. Uh, he also assigns a list of treasurers, which they are responsible for the treasuries and the gifts donated to the tabernacle uh, and various other officials. He kind of elevates and puts people in positions and roles. Um, chapter 27 in the CSB has its heading called David's Secular Officials. Uh, More which, like succular officials. <laughs> am I right? No. Uh, and so it's interesting because in, in today's day and age, the I guess not even on today, it's like an old school comparison between uh, what Christian and secular, <laughs> religious and secular. Um, so I just found it kind of amusing to read, like got a flashback back to the early 2000s or 90s. Um, but what it means is, is in essence, it's not Levitical workers. It's not people from the tribe of Levi who have tabernacle responsibilities. Uh, so David is setting up officials. Um, and the key here is there's 24,000 troops per division that rotate monthly. So in essence, in essence, not essence, in essence, um, one of these divisions of 24,000 troops would serve for one month out of a year um, and rotate. So there were 12 tribes or 12 divisions that would rotate 24,000 troops once a month. Uh, and during times of peace, it'd be you serve one month and you have 11 months off. You serve one month and have 11 months off. Um, during times of war, obviously, the entire army and the entire people and population would be mobilized that are able to, um, excuse me, that they're able to fight and, and defend as needed. Um, here's, a, here's a quick side note in chapter 27. David didn't count them in at this point uh, because he understood God's wrath was poured out on him because of his census last time. So he didn't count them this time. He he chose to leave the, the census alone on how many men were actually there uh, and able body fighting men. Um, chapter 28, we will see that David talks to his son Solomon. Um, and again, David's coming to the end of his life. He knows this. That's why he's setting up people in position for the tabernacle. He's setting up people in position in military um, protection and divisions and processes. And he's coming to the end. He's coming. He, he realizes the God, people of God are coming to a season of peace, a time of peace. Um, and so he's kind of wrapping up his loose ends before he hands off the baton. Um, and then, so in chapter 28, we see David pulling Solomon aside and commissioning him, hey, when you're king, you're going to build the temple. Um, and he lays out the the plans. He lays out the communication. He tells Solomon, this is what I'm charging you to do. Solomon agrees. So then we jump into chapter 29 and we see that David goes public and proclaiming to the people of Israel about Solomon building the temple. He then explains the provisions that have been set aside, uh, which are a ton of materials, um, that are required to build a temple. And then David goes a step further and he himself identifies the things that he sets aside from his own personal treasuries. Um, and so it's not just, hey, I've made sure that the kingdom is set up and put stuff aside, but I myself am taking it out of my own pocket. Now go back to when he built the the, the altar and the threshing floor of Aruna. He said himself, I'm not going to sacrifice something to the Lord that would cost me nothing. So even in David's attempt and desire to see this temple built, he understood. Now, David never saw the temple built, by the way, um, but he understood and had such conviction for it and such vision for it that it wasn't just, hey, the kingdom is setting aside materials for it. He's like, I myself am removing a large chunk of my own treasury to give to uh, to the temple and seeing the temple be built. Um, so he does that too. So then we get um, this moment, from this moment we get... Uh, David, as he celebrates with God's people, 
the joy and willingness, uh, and also the joy and willingness of the people to give freely to see the temple built. Uh, he blesses the Lord and thanks him for the blessing of this temple. And then we have this moment uh, in chapter 29, verses 14 to 19, uh, which which is a really, like this is, I would say this is like David's understanding based upon like the journey of his life. He, he kind of has these moments that, and we'll see these in the Psalms as we hit them uh, at the end of today, this week's reading, and then a large chunk next week uh, and the week after that. Um, but you see this deep revelation of his real insignificance uh, and his understanding of who God is and God's sovereignty and power. Uh, so he says this in chapter 29, verse 14, he says, but who am I and who are my people? Remember Israel was not a large nation. It was a small nation in a very large world. Um, and so he understands the significance of size. He says that we should be able to give as generously as this. So they're not rich. They're not wealthy. They're not the most like, I mean, there's other kingdoms that are far wealthier, but he sees the value and the the vitality of the generosity of the people to see God's temple be built. Um, and then he, he uh, attributes all of this, continues in verse 14, says, for everything comes from you and we have given only what comes from your own hand. For we are aliens and temporary residents in your presence, as well as our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this wealth that we've provided for the build, for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. Everything belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and you are pleased with what is right. I have willingly given all these things with an upright heart. And now I have seen your people who are present here giving joyfully and willingly. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors. Notice how he doesn't say Jacob there, by the way. Um, Keep this desire forever in the thoughts of the hearts of your people and confirm their hearts towards you. Give my son Solomon an undivided heart to keep uh, and to carry out all of your commands, your decrees, and your statutes, and to the building for which I have made provision. Then David said to the whole assembly, Blessed be the Lord your God. So the whole assembly praised the Lord God of their ancestors. They knelt low and paid homage to the Lord and the king. The following day, they offered the sacrifices to the Lord and burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, all their drink offerings and sacrifices in in an abundance of all of Israel. They ate and drank with great joy in the Lord's presence that day. Then for a second time, they made David's son Solomon king. They anointed him as the Lord's ruler and Zadok as the priest. And so it's just a significant moment where not only is the baton being passed, the proclamations being given, but all of God's people are rallying together, are investing into the kingdom, the temple together. Uh, and it's a big, joyful celebration. And David leads the way. David doesn't just set aside stuff kingdom wise. He also sees from his own treasury's money to be set aside. Um, then we shift into first Kings uh, chapter one through two, nine. Uh, and we really are beginning to see David's last days. That's what it really comes down to. Um, in chapter one, we see that during David's last days, there one of his sons from the, his wife or concubine, Haggith, uh, which was probably more of a concubine than a wife. But a great name nonetheless. Sure. Um, Haggard? What? Just kidding. Um, but during his name is Adonijah, uh, was a son of David. And he said, he, he, he had a, he spoke his kingship into existence. That's how I said it. Uh, he uh, in essence, walked around saying, I'm going to become king. I'm going to become king. So he prepared chariots, cavalry, and 50 men to run ahead of him. Kind of sounds familiar. Uh, this actually played out a little bit ago with uh, another son of David called Absalom. Because uh, in essence, Absalom did the exact same thing. 
except he positioned himself differently. But he put himself in position by buying chariot, getting chariots, having army, having men with him, and then fifty men to run ahead of him. Uh, so Adonijah does the same thing. Well, the idea of yeah, it's the eldest son or the eldest child of the king is the one who inherits. That that's. That's kind of been the way, like it usually works for a long time, but for in the ancient world, and even like when you look at medieval history, it's usually just whatever son is the strongest is going to become yeah. king after after the king is dead. Um, you see this all the time in medieval history. I'm reading right now about um, uh, El Cid, like Spain and the history of Spain and stuff like that, but it's like King Fernando. And then he's like, hey, I'll just divide my kingdom between my three sons. And that always works every time. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And the sons definitely don't go to war to no, see which one of them is going to take it out. But it's kind of like, it, you're seeing that happen with David here where it is a very standard thing that the sons would be like, okay, which one of us is going to actually take it? And so Adonijah, what he's doing is uh, it's wrong. It's against the command of God, but it's very much in keeping with what a standard son of the king would do in this situation. Yeah. They're jockeying for position. Uh, so Adonijah, I say Adonijah, you said Adonijah, but either way it works. Um, tomato, tomato. Uh, so anyways, he, he sets himself up. He has a following. Uh, David is in essence at this point, bedridden. He's not able to really be active, engaged in the kingdom. He had already hand off the baton. Um, and so then Bathsheba and Nathan have a conversation to thwart Adonijah's attempt to become king. Um, Nathan talks to Bathsheba, Bathsheba talks to Nathan, Bathsheba goes in to, Na- to David while he's in his bed, explains to him the situation. Hey, did you say that Adonijah would be king? Um, Nathan had told her, you go in and tell him first, then I'll come in and affirm and confirm what you told him. Um, so long story short, David finds out that uh, Adonijah is becoming, or trying to become king. Um, he then tells Bathsheba, nope, uh, Solomon's supposed to be king. Um, and then the interesting thing is Adonijah didn't bring Benani- or Benaiah, he didn't bring Nathan, and he didn't bring Zadok um, with him to celebrate his attempt for kingship. Um, David then has Solomon anointed king by Zadok the priest, and then out of that says, you are to blow the trumpet. Everyone's supposed to say, long live King Solomon. This plays out. Adonijah's people find out that David has chosen Solomon. So it's almost one of those things like, did they not know? We just read that he was an anointed king. Um, so maybe he's just ignorant or maybe he's trying to usurp the throne. All of that to say, the allegiance to Solomon shows up. Adonijah's tr- people, they begin to be afraid. It says that they were tremble and they were terrified. And so they run away. They leave Adonijah behind. I mean, yeah, that's something to be afraid of. Which is smart. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so then, and this is the best part. Adonijah runs to the tabernacle to hide. Uh, he it says it, it uses in the CSB the version that he grabs the horns of the altar. Uh, in essence, the refuge is the tabernacle. There's not supposed to be any bloodshed. There's not supposed to be any fighting. There's not supposed to be any war. It's a sacred place. And so Adonijah runs to the tabernacle to hide. It's a place of refuge. He says he won't come out unless Solomon promises not to kill him. And so Solomon says, okay, if he's a man of integrity, no harm is going to come to him. But if he's foolish, he's going to die. And so then he tells Adonijah, go home. And so Adonijah goes home. Uh, and so we see uh, Solomon is, is established as king, Adonijah, I'll say it your way, bro, and thank you. And ends up going home. Uh, and in chapter two, we see David's last days approaching. Uh, and this is where over the next few chapters of reading or the few sections of reading, we begin to get David's like last words. It's the last few thoughts that he has, the last commissions or commands that he gives. Uh, and so in chapter two, verse one through nine, it says this, it says, as the time approached for David to die, he ordered his son, of, he ordered his son Solomon, as for me, 
I'm going to the way of all the earth. Be strong and be a man. And keep your obligation to the Lord your God to walk in his ways and keep his statutes, commands, ordinances, and decrees. This is written in the law of Moses so that you will have success in everything you do and wherever you turn. And so the Lord will fulfill, and so that the Lord will fulfill his promise that he made to me. If your sons guard their way to walk faithfully before me with all their heart, with all their soul, you will never have a man on your throne of Israel. You will never not have a man. You fail to have a man on your throne of Israel. You also know that. And this is interesting. David then shifts. And this is where we see a little bit of David's grudge holding. <laughs> so you see this in verse five. So he tells Solomon, hey, obey the Lord, stick to the commands, stick to the statutes so that you will have you will have a long and prosperous reign and God's promise will be fulfilled to me that there will never be a son that's not on the throne. Then he says this, you also know that Joab, son of Zariah, did, you also know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me and what he did to the two commanders of Israel's army, Abner, son of Ner and Amasa, son of Jether. He murdered them in a time of peace to avenge bloodshed and war. He spilled the blood on his own waistband and on the sandals of his feet. Act according to your wisdom and do not let his gray head descend to Sheol in peace. In other words, take care of him. Take him out, son, take him out. <laughs> and so in verse seven, he says, show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gil- Gil- Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table because they supported me when I fled from your brother Absalom. Keep, keep an eye on Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Behurim, who is with you. He uttered malicious curses against me that day when I went to Manheim, but he came down to meet me at the Jordan River. I swore to him by the Lord, I will never kill you with a sword. Verse 9, so don't let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man. You know how to deal with him to bring his gray head down to Sheol with blood. In other words, David's like, hey, these two guys that have done me wrong, take them out, son. I commission you, go do it. Yeah, what's what's kind of crazy about this, and so this is where I said this is, when I was talking about the census, I said this is David's final unquestioned failure as king, Mm -hmm. because this is up for debate a little bit. Um, I think this is a failure of David as well, because when he becomes king, what is is his whole thing? It's that I'm not going to take the throne. I'm not going to put to death all of my enemies unless like they're coming to war against me or something like that. and even like with, with Joab, Abner is the type of political enemy that you would put to death. Like it makes sense to put Abner to death. And David is furious that Joab would do this for him. Um, and so it's just very hypocritical of David to say, and especially because they're not necessarily Solomon's enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, Joab, we'll see a little bit, is uh, Shmi, not Shmi. I don't know how to. Uh, Shmi? Shmi? Shmi, Mr. Captain Shmi. Hook? Um, <laughs> now, now that's in my head. Um, He's also not necessarily an enemy of Solomon specifically either. It's yeah. just these are like you said, it's David holding grudges. And it's not even just saying, like, if if, if all he said was keep an eye on Shimei, you know, that guy's not very trustworthy, it's whatever. He specifically says, Don't let him die except by killing him. Like yeah. I, I want him to be murdered. I yeah. don't want him to die peacefully in his sleep. Same thing with Joab. And again, Joab is for, he has he has his faults. And I am not, I am not as we You're all know. Not team Joab. I am not team Joab. Uh, but he has served David faithfully for years. And many, many times it is Joab who is at the Joab who is at the forefront of the armies of David uh during his great victories. And so to just straight up put a hit on him at yeah. the end of his life, that's lame. And especially the way that Joab is killed, and we'll get to that. I'm, I'm assuming we're getting, I, I didn't. I don't we, think, no, we don't get to that. Well, we don't get to so that. So we read week. David's life and then we read a bunch of Psalms. Full, so dis, full we, disclosure listeners, we're doing two episodes this week. So, sh- I, so I, I only read what I'm covering. So. No. So what happens is we'll read David's life at the end of his life. Then we jump into the book of Psalms. 
that he wrote, the Psalms that he wrote. And I'll gotcha. mention this as we get jump in because we're going to do that in a few minutes. Um, but we read the end of David's life. We wrap up. This is almost the end of some of the narrative stuff. And then we jump into Psalms. And we're going to get an overview. Uh, in essence, the Psalms that we're going to read today and next week and the week after are ones that don't have a historical anchor point, meaning we don't have the the, the purpose or the time when David wrote them but they are written by David. Right. And so we get it almost like a, a, a almost like a, a life in memoirs. We get a review of David's life and yeah. the things that he worked through. So, yeah, so to, we don't get to, to Joab's death just yet. There you go. Yeah. So to be clear, listeners, the Psalms that we're reading, they're not like David is about to die and he scribbles out half the book of Psalms. <laughs> Correct. It's just, these are the ones that we don't have. He wrote throughout his lifetime that we don't have a, a yeah. date to. All that to say, David putting a hit on some of his enemies at the end of his life. But here's the thing though. I don't know. What there's two things that I'm I'm curious about that I'm processing as you're talking, right? So right. I have not thought about this before. Um, but he said, he said they both caused bloodshed in the time of peace to avenge for bloodshed during war. So could the issue be, and I don't know, could the issue be like they're not trustworthy in times of peace because they act to their own agenda, their own desires, their own revenge. They're caught up in their own their own perspective and so David is seeing the kingdom coming into a time of peace. So could it be very like, these are two guys that you can't trust to continue in the time of peace. But if that's, if that's all David said, like I said, I would have been fine because Shimei is, Shimei is basically, uh, he's basically taken out of the equation, right? Like he's not, he's not killed, but like when we will read about his situation in a little bit, um, he, he's not a threat. <laughs> like he has, he's basically yeah. under house well, arrest. So in total disclosure, like I'm reading the plan and I don't remember much of what happens after I read the plan. So I'm like, I typically read a week ahead. So I don't even know what's coming after all this. But as I'm looking at it, I, I don't disagree that this is probably a really, uh, it's a stain on David's legacy as a king. But there is something to be said about a time of peace. There shouldn't be a time of division or war. And when Joab kills uh, Abner, it's a time and of Amasa, peace. It's a time of peace. Amasa is not a time of peace. Are you it's, sure? Because it's when they're going to it's when they're going to battle. Because he's have he it's when she it's Sheba's rebellion mm-hmm. and David calls the armies. He tells Amasa to get the armies I together. Forget. We're going to war. Okay. I mean, I guess they're not in. They're not. Yeah, in, and that's in the midst. So, of anyways, battle. it's it's interesting for sure. Anyways, he tells Solomon to take care of it. Solomon does. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, then we see in chapters, we jump to chapter second Samuel chapter 23, uh, the f- verse seven, first seven verses there. Again, these are David's last words. So I'm just going to read them in honor of Evan and how he likes to highlight the last words of anybody spoken. For sure. Uh, it says this, these are the last words of David, the declaration of David, son of Jesse, the declaration of the man raised on high, the one anointed by the God of Jacob. This is the most delightful of Israel's songs. And this is, this is why I like it too, because it's not just, here's the last words. Like David ends his words in like poetic song. Like (laughs) that's what he says. And so it says this, he says, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, the one who rules the people with justice, who, who rules in the fear of God is like the morning light. When the sun rises on a cloud this morning, the glisten of rain on the sprouting grass. Is it not true? My house is with God for he has established a permanent covenant with me ordered and secured in every detail. Will he not bring about my whole salvation in my every desire? But all the wicked are like thorns raked aside. They can never be picked up by hand. The man who touches them must be armed with iron and the, sh- and the shaft of a spear. They will be completely burned up on the spot. We shift to First cha- Kings chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. This is where David dies. <laughs> uh, so he dies 
In First Chronicles, when we go back, the 26th to 30, we get a quick summary of David's reign where he reigned for 40 years. Seven of those years was in Hebron. Um, and then we shift in this week, we shift to the reading uh, of f- six different Psalms, four, five, six, eight, nine, eleven. 11. Um, and again, like I've said, these are historic. This is the beginning of a gauntlet, I would call it. Um, it's a little bit difficult. And if there's one thing I could tell you before I jump into these, I'm just going to kind of give us a, a quick highlight and a key verse uh, that I would take from these verse, these Psalms. Um, I would simply say this, read them slow enough to where you can comprehend what's happening. Um, these are, like I said, the reflection uh, that we can see. It's almost like a, when you see a movie and you see a character dying, you get like a montage of his life or the I highlights. Will remember exactly. You. So as, as Evan sings, I'm going to read these. No, I'm just kidding. Um, That'd be awesome. <laughs> it'd be hilarious uh, if we would have planned that without telling. That would have been rad. But anyways, um, so we start with chapter four or Psalm chapter four. Um, and again, they didn't have an anchor point in history. Uh, they're written at some point through David's life. So as David passes away, before we go anywhere further in a chronological plan, we are going to read all of the Psalms of David that have not already been read throughout his, his history. Um, so chapter four of the book of Psalms is like this night prayer. Uh, it's a prayer that would have been sung at night or recited at night. Uh, it is the first song in the collection of Psalms that has music put to it. Um, so David was a musical guy. He loved it, but it is meant to be a, a, a prayer that was oftentimes recited or sang at night. Uh, I would say a key verse for me when I read it, it was verses seven and eight. And it says this, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will be, I will both lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. And it's a really good reflection as he's re- recalling the hope, the peace, the prosperity at the end of the day, he's comparing the peace that he has as he goes to sleep versus those who are, are, not, are will be called wicked, so to speak, uh, where they put their hope in, new, in their grain and their new wine. Um, so that's Psalm chapter four. Psalm chapter five is a refuge is, is a psalm titled a refuge for refuge for the righteous. Uh, it will compare the promise of the wicked with the refuge that God provides. Uh, my key verses that I would highlight are eleven and twelve. It says, "But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield." Uh, so highlights, you're going to see a lot of these themes get repetitive too, like refuge. God is a refuge. He's a tower, things like that. Uh, so you're going to find those things consistently repetitive throughout the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm chapter six is a prayer for mercy. Uh, we're in facing adversity. This is a prayer that would ask God to bring mercy and relief and protection and provision and deliverance. Um, I would say the key verse is the very first verse there in this Psalm Uh, chapter six, it says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. You see right out the gate that David recognizes uh, the punishment. He recognizes that he is in the wrong and is pleading and crying is out for mercy. Psalm chapter eight is, uh, was titled God's glory, human dignity. Um, It could be a song that was sung during the grape harvest, which was interesting to me. Um, Love grapes. Yeah, you got to love grapes. Uh, But it celebrates God's glory. It celebrates God's faithfulness. Um, And the key verses, I would say, are actually three or four of them. Verses three through six, it says this. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is a human being? This This reflects back to like even his reflection throughout his life and many other Psalms about his insignificance as a human and in light of God's grand picture. Who am I that you are It's not this psalm, but it follows that same line of thought. Um, 
It says, what is human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Uh, So that's this picture of God's glory versus human dignity. Psalm chapter nine is a celebration of God's justice. Uh, It carries a tone of thanksgiving as David is going to reflect on the sovereignty and justness of God's rule. Uh, Key verse for me would be seven and eight. It says, but the Lord sits in the throne forever. He has established his throne for judgment and he judges the word, the world with righteousness and executes judgment on the nations with fairness. Uh, And then the last Psalm we read this week is Psalm chapter 11. Uh, which is, again, refuge in the Lord. Uh, It can contrast the idea of running away defenseless like a bird uh, or finding refuge uh, in the Lord. And I would say, again, this is the key verse, uh, is the very first verse. It says, I take refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, escaped the mountains like a bird? Now, it's interesting because the birds... the mountains escape. Sorry, I was I lost my train of thought. Uh, he escapes the mountains like a bird. In essence, a bird flies away from things defenseless for the most part. And so, uh, it's this contrast between I'm running to the Lord, who's my refuge, rather than escape trying to run away defenseless like a bird. Um, and so that that kind of wraps up the Psalms. And so again, the Psalms are going to be what we're going to be reading the next couple of weeks. My one encouragement to you as you read it, and this is coming out of having read two weeks worth of Psalms to really be prepared and having to, and then going back and kind of prepping and writing my notes, this would be my only encouragement. So read them slow enough to where you're actually able to stay present in the Psalms themselves before you move on to the next one. It's going to feel very quick and very rapid fire, but read them slow enough to where you can stay present in each Psalm before you move on to the next one. But that's it for this week. Next week will be a whole lot more. All right. Well, we have a few uh, a few extra sections to go through dun, today. Dun, dun, dun. I know. The first one we're going to be doing is because we have observed the death of another king, we will be ranking King David. All right. Well, I mean, this one, I feel like this one's pretty easy. I, I think David's a great king. Like David's one of the, uh, David's one of the top kings in the history of Israel. Obviously not a perfect man, uh, as we've spent a lot of time talking Correct. about. Uh, but I think there's kind of a standard that gets put on the rest of the kings where you'll see there's good kings. And then usually the great kings are determined by saying they did what was right in the sight of the Lord as their father David before them. And that so David is kind that's of That's a pretty high that's a pretty exactly. high placement. David is David seems to be God's measuring mark of the best of the kings and so here's the, if that's God's opinion we're, <laughs> who am I to argue? Works for me. Yeah. So I would say David is definitely a top tier king. We'll see at the end if we uh, if we think he's the best king in the history Ooh, of Israel. And that's Judah. coming at the I know, end of the review. Yeah, I know. Last year we uh, there was some controversy about about who we put who we who we think maybe is the best king, but I, I think it's pretty safe to say that David is uh, in that top tier of kings. I'm assuming you agree. There. Yeah, hundred percent. All right. It is again as we get to the end of it. It is going to. It does shift a little bit for me. Um, as we get towards the end. Uh, but he definitely, and I, I, forgive me, I forget we've used this rating system a lot. Uh, I don't remember what the top tier is. So it's the great kings, great kings good, good kings, kings, okay kings, yeah. bad kings, worst kings. Yep. And Saul's, the, the, Saul's an okay king. Yeah. Correct? That's, yeah. How, that's how we've ranked it so far. We yeah. reserve the right to change before we actually put out the tier list. But as of now, <laughs> we have Saul as an okay See, king. See, I think we should put out the tier list as it as it grows and let them see it as it grows. I mean, I guess But we can. anyways, I yeah. Like, so yeah. yeah, as of right now, he's definitely a good to great king. Um, and 
and we'll see how that changes. All right. Well, next up, we do want to talk about what we learned today. Okay. So for me, like just talking about it's the end of David's reign is kind of what we've been spending most of our podcast today talking about. Um, in my section, we talk about the senses. And I think it's just the danger of letting pride creep into our lives. Um, and I think from a particularly Christian perspective, so David's whole sin here is he's trusting in his own strength over the strength of God, which has mm-hmm. delivered him so far from everything. I think in our lives, we can trust in our own righteousness instead of trusting in the righteousness of Christ. Um, I remember like I was praying the other day and I was, I was just kind of convicted over the thought of um, how often do I use prayer and relationship with God as kind of a, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say it. Um, basically as like a, oh, that's not good in my life. I need to pray and get this taken care of. But when things are going good, am I still like being dedicated to my prayer life? Am I still being dedicated to pursuing a relationship with God? Or is it just this thing that's like, oh, oh that's not good. We need to make sure we stamp this out. Um, and so for me, it's just kind of this idea of seeking after the Lord because we love the Lord. And I think at the end, David kind of loses that a little bit where he's, everything's going so well. His enemies are essentially taken care of. Uh, and you see pride begin to creep into mm-hmm. David's life because what's the, what's the thing he desires? He wants like, man, I want to see how many warriors do we actually have in this bad boy? And uh, as we can see, that was a uh, that was a real bummer that led to the deaths of many of David's people. Yeah, that's that's good. It's true. Pride is such an easy easy thing to forget about, or even it's so subtle. So um, as I was kind of reflecting on you know the end of David's life, the uh, the handoff to Solomon, and then even jumping into the Book of Psalms. Um, the one encouragement that I like I took was just the like David David had some really high highs and some really low lows. And at the end of his life, is he still holding tightly to the promise and the and 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 really the promise God gave him? I mean, even when it comes to his confession towards in his last words, this idea that the Lord will be faithful to fulfill his promise to me, um, he clings very tightly. And even as I was reading some of his even as I was reading some of his last words, my mind was going to like, oh, David, if only you knew. <laughs> when you wrote these words, if only you knew, oh, what would David. happen to your throne? What would happen to the city of Jerusalem? What would the city of David? Um, but he really did hold tightly in the midst of his high highs and his low lows. He held tightly to tr- his trust and hope in God and in God's direction and God's provision. And he had misses for sure. Um, but the fact that at the end of his life, he was still holding tightly to the fact of who God was, of what God said he was going to do. And even as we jumped into Psalms and we began to see glimpses throughout his life, the the stories and the confidence he had in God alone, I think it's significant. And I just, it's it's encouraging to me that no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, like David's, David's one consistent foundational strength was his trust in who God is and his trust in God's provision in his life. Uh, and so I, I think that's a really good reminder for us, um, no matter the situation or circumstances we find ourselves in, um, that God is who he says he is, that he's trustworthy, he's faithful to complete the work that he starts, and he will do what he says he will do. Uh, and we can hold tightly to that as well. So I thought that was a really good thought too. Oh, love that. All right, well, last thing we're going to do today is we did have a question come There's in. There's a question. So let's take a second to answer that. 
All right, so our question says, greetings. My question and thought is on 2 Samuel verse 6, or 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. After reading these verses several times, I can't help but think sorrowful for Uzzah. Why? In verse 3, it says that they take that they set the ark, uh, the ark of God on a new cart. A new cart is confusing because care, of care taken by the Levites for the first ark of God, where only the Levites were allowed to touch. I do not know who they are in this verse, but they do not appear to be Levites. The second part of confusion is in verse 5. Celebrating might give Uzzah the idea to relax a little bit. Also in verse 8, just wondering why is David angry because he did not let lead the ark of God well. All that is going on in this passage, and and is it is a lot, and I feel for Uzzah. So, if remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about this. David wants to bring the ark back. Uh, and we'll just read the section here really quick. Uh, it says, And David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah of Ohio and uh, the sons of Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God when Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castan, uh, I don't know what that is actually, and cymbals. Uh, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died beside the ark. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Okay. So. Castanets, by the way. Castanets. Oh. The, the little clicker oh, things that you go in your hands. Oh, I played those in preschool. I got you, bro. There you go. All right. Well, you learn, you learn something new every day. Well, that wraps it up for. I'm just kidding. Just, <laughs> so, uh, Forget the question. There's. No, I'm just kidding. So, okay, yeah. So this is, this is a really difficult passage of the Bible to read. There's a few things going on here. Um, you're absolutely right that they're not Levites. Yes. So that is that is sin numero uno in this situation. I don't know why I said numero uno. That's pretty lame. But um, that is sin number one in this situation. The that David is not taking the ark. It, basically, I would put it this way: he's dealing with the ark flippantly. In this moment. Yeah. Um, and it's not completely all sinful because there's excitement, but what is David doing? He's not taking care to make sure that the ark is transported yeah. in the way. In his zeal for the Lord and yeah. his excitement and passion for the ark to be returned, he ignores some very strategic and specific things. Yeah. And Uzzah commits the, commits the same sin as the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Remember all the way back to, I think it's Leviticus when that happens. Um, but back they, in the day, yeah, they deal. They remember back, listeners, many many episodes ago. But they deal flippantly with the with mm-hmm. the tabernacle. They offer incense in an inappropriate way, uh, and and God kills them for it. And so as I hear. His it, it sucks because I think we think of this as like, he's not cursing God. He's not murdering. Yeah. He's touching the Ark of the Covenant. Right. But what what he is doing is he is dishonoring the commands mm-hmm. of God in this moment. And, and ultimately, God commands for the holy items of the tabernacles to be handled in a certain way. Uh, and he will not tolerate flippancy when mm-hmm. it comes to that. It's why one of the commandments is do not take the Lord's name in vain. Or in other words, don't be flippant with the name of God. Yeah. Um, and that's why you see like, and it's interpreted in all kinds of different ways. So it's like when you read old Hebrew manuscripts, that's why the the word Yahweh is never written out. It's written out in consonants or it says the name, which I just found out about. I think that's a cool, a cool way of saying it as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's this whole thing. And so that's, what's going on with us. As far as for why David's upset. I mean, I think David's understandably, um, 
he's not justifiably upset because it's kind of his fault, but I understand how he's upset because it's like, whoa, like we were just like, this was supposed to be a good thing. And now all of a sudden this guy's dead and the whole party's over. And remember the arc stays there for another three months before David decides to go back Mm -hmm. and bring it the rest of the way, uh, the rest of the way into Jerusalem. It is, it is a really sad story. Um, but I th- I do think it's an important reminder. Again, it's a similar reminder that we get all through the law of Leviticus and Numbers. Yeah, that the holiness of God is something to be at the forefront of our minds at all times, and we should not do flippantly that which God commands, which is unfortunately what is being done here. The ark is being returned to Jerusalem, which is a good thing, um, but it's being done in a flippant manner. Yeah, and I think I think you got to remember though too. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. That Uzzah touched the actual Ark of the Covenant. When they moved the Ark even to a new cart, like the cart wasn't as, it was not sacred and holy like the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so when it was put on a new cart, you're right, there is care and um, specific specificity to what should have and how it should have been handled and what kind of cart it should be on. Um, but what was like the holy thing, which was the sacred thing that you're not supposed to touch? Because remember, they had the poles that they had put under it to which which with which they would carry the ark of the covenant. Right. So they would be removed from access to touching. Um and so when the ark seemed to have been to stumble a bit, Uzzah made the flipping thing like I will study the ark. At the end of the day, no. Um and so he called down judgment on himself because he did that. Now he could have been doing it I mean, that's my best case scenario. He could have been doing it to protect. If the Ark of the Covenant fell, it could have been David's. It could have been David's head. It could have been his fault, like because the Ark of the Covenant would have been damaged. He was moving it improperly. All of that to say, um, the 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 issue here, and it's it's absolutely discouraging. It's absolutely disappointing. And yeah, feel I feel for Uzzah too because it was for the most part an innocent act. Yeah, I, I don't. But think he Uzzah also has it was negligent intentions. though too. I would say there's negligence yeah. there because he himself should have been aware of the standard and the expectation when it come to handling the ark. So I think there's those layers to it for sure. Um, and, and it's just a bummer of a situation. And David's angry because Uzzah died. And in hindsight, you see, and if you remember in the next passage or the next few moments when David re- brings the ark from Obed-Edom, uh, there is proper protocol put in place so that way it could be handled properly. But it's a bummer of a situation for sure. Um, but it's the Ark of the Covenant being touched that's the issue because it was a lack of awareness and consideration for how God expected the Ark of the Covenant to be handled. And right. so that's what it comes down to. It's a bummer. I like the way, I think it was Arshi Sproul who said, uh, perhaps the greatest sin of Uzzah was assuming that the dirt which God created was somehow more unclean than his sinful hands, which I was like, yes. I was like, that's I like, remember that too. Now that you say that, yeah, that's, like, that's a line that's like, Oh snap. If you've never listened to RC Sproul, you know, give it, give him a listen. He's, he's unfortunately passed away, but there's uh, there's archives everywhere for all this stuff. He's, he's got some good stuff. Uh, but anyways, listeners, that wraps it up for this week's episode of let's read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove church, but we are not the only resource of the Grove church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a gift button in the upper right hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.